Have you ever wanted an instruction manual for your life? Something that went over the stuff that isn't always obvious? Or even some of the stuff that is? My name is Sarah Ramsey. I'm a singer, voice, performance, and growth coach, and I've spent a lifetime open to the lessons behind our experiences and seeking out pathways to becoming more enlightened, better humans. And I'm Dr. Stefan Rabnett. I've been a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine for over 20 years, and I'm also a Jay Shetty certified life coach. I've long been fascinated with our human superpowers, the ones we don't quite have the instruction manual for, and I'm forever curious about how we can unlock them. Welcome to This Big Life Podcast, where we have deeper conversations about the nature of existence, our place in it, and how we can leverage these things to create the life we want. Basically, we're bringing the woo-woo to you, you. But don't worry, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This Big Life Podcast. Today's episode, we have another version, an exciting version of the three big things where our guest talks about the three big things for life. And today we are very honored and fortunate to have Chef Ned Bell with us today. Uh, Chef Ned Bell is an executive chef. He's opened dozens of restaurants, appeared on numerous TV shows, He's been a driving force behind the sustainable fisheries movement, and he's just an all-around good guy. He's a family man, and in our brief conversations together, he has completely changed how I look at the culture of the restaurant industry, and that was big for me. Anyways, welcome, Ned. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, friends. Good day, Sarah. How are you, Stefan? Nice to see you, my friend. We've known each other for a long, long time. It's so good to see you. Yeah, face. it is good to see your face. Ned and I went to high school together, which was a year or two ago. <laughs> it was a couple of <laughs> years ago, back in McGee. Um, but it's it's been great to kind of follow from afar and just to kind of see the work that you've done. And again, in our conversations together, I was really, I don't know, for lack of a better word, proud, right? Like, it's strange to be proud of someone, you know, on one level, but it, uh, it just hearing you talk about everything, perfect. And really, just your energy. <laughs> it's as if we're having <laughs> some technical <laughs> difficulties. Sorry, <laughs> friend. I'm still here. I just had an issue with the chair I'm sitting on and spilt uh, my tea oh, all over, no. all over oh, the ground. No. I felt that when I saw the drop there. Anyways, Ned. Oh my gosh. What a good way to start. And well, in all your perfect humanness, thank you for joining us. <laughs> I I'm really happy to be here. I have uh like all of us, you know, an incredibly fortunate but very complicated journey that's brought me to this mm -hmm. point. And uh yeah, I'm just thrilled to be here. I've I've had many uh many successes and many challenges in my life and you know, the one constant for me has been from a very early age. Uh, I, my fir very first job was washing dishes at a at a restaurant close to where I grew up. And honestly, from that moment, I sort of had this, I don't know if it was a sixth sense or a tingling or just an enjoyment for how it connected people, but I fell in love with hospitality and knew fairly early on I wanted to be a chef. I actually... One of the most, um, one of the original sort of supporters, I guess, of that vision was, uh, was um, you know, my home economics teacher. Really, I'm the product of a great home economics mm -hmm. teacher. And let's just say I wasn't the best student. I was more interested in, in rugby and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, food, I guess. I was a pretty chubby kid. And she, um, you know, pretty quickly on in my life recognized that, uh, Maybe I should maybe I should go into the trades. And uh, very shortly after high school, that's a, the decision I made. I love that. I think uh, teachers can be really pivotal in our lives. Good teachers and bad teachers, unfortunately, but good teachers can be extremely pivotal in our lives. And uh, I think that that story of 
a teacher who recognizes that someone's journey might not be the most typical predictable path and finds a way to encourage them to follow the path that is the most appropriate for them. Those are the really magic teachers. I know I, I had, um, I didn't so much experience them for myself, but I experienced them with some of my kids' teachers because I have, I actually have a kid who's gone into the restaurant industry and is on his way to becoming a chef as well. So um, similar, but teacher, and also went to McGee, funny enough, but his some of his teachers at McGee, his guidance counselor really recognized that the standard school path was not going to be the good fit for him. And it was pivotal having that support, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mrs. Cleaver was her name. I'm not sure, Steph, if you remember uh, Mrs. Kleber or Mrs. Tanabi, but I do. You know, I remember when I when I told my grandfather, who was a surgeon, that I wanted to be a chef. He looked at me like I had a hole <laughs> in my head. You know, he he was like, "What are you talking about? That's the guy that carves roast beef at the country club. That's not a career. That's not a that's not the path that our family is on." You know, both my parents went to UBC and you know, commerce graduate and English major. And, you know, that I was the oldest grandchild. And so that was sort of the expectation. And it just wasn't where I was headed. And honestly, 35 years later, I still absolutely love what I do. And that's what matters, period. You know, I, 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 you know, it's been a challenge, you know, the decades have not always been easy. But in during the times of of the the largest challenges in my life i could always fall back on my career that i loved so dearly because it it gave me happiness to be in the kitchen to be feeding people food is the one thing that brings every human together and i think that's what i was originally attracted to you know even going back to when i first started cooking for my younger brother and sister after my parents got divorced when i was 12 those early memories 12 13 14 were feeding my siblings. And, you know, my mom was out there kicking butt and trying to raise a family, single parent and, you know, working her tail off. And, you know, my role was to try and assist in some way, you know, in the home and food was the way that I could do it. And, you know, I was a chubby kid, as I has mentioned. And so, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love food because I love to eat. <laughs> I have, you know, over the last couple of decades, you know, managed that. Uh, but I have a fairly addictive personality. I love, you know, I love consumption and probably often too much consumption. And, uh, you know, certainly, certainly being a chef, proud blue collar tradesperson, the product of a, of a great home economics teacher is, is a gift that I know for sure. I know this for sure will continue to give me joy until the end of my career. And I'm not even looking forward to the end of my career. I hope it's another 25 years, you know, like, because why not? It could, it could easily be, it might not be one kitchen chained to that stove, but it could be influencing in all kinds of different mm -hmm. ways. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Cause what, you know, what I'm hearing for you, from you, just hearing you about, um, you know, there's joy through connection and experience, you know, through connection in terms of other people experience, both for yourself, even if you're just having some food and being able to share that experience through all these connections you've made. And how much, like going back to what you originally said, just a, a relationship that some would maybe just dismiss as this small relationship, even in like that, you know, a teacher could dismiss because it's just, oh, it's just one of students, but how much small relationships matter that that small relationship with the home ec teachers was crucial for you to be able to have all this joy, to be able to have all this connection and to facilitate other people's experience with the same amount of joy. So I just, mm -hmm. I'm just taken from this part of the, how much small relationships matter. And that, that yeah. is just, your story is such a great example of that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I would, I would agree. And, and, you know, that's a, that's, you know, it makes me think of my role as a mentor and as a teacher myself now, or for the past, you know, 25 of my 35 year career, because it takes you 10 years to become a chef. 
then you got to sort of be in your own skin for another 10 before you really realize what you what your own strengths you know may be and and truthfully the biggest joy that i get out of my career right now is helping the next generations of culinarians because they don't all look like me they don't all come from the same background that i came from you know they might um they might not necessarily have the same goals but i know that you know my journey has had pitfalls and huge successes you know that have always come from hard work but also come from just you know how fortunate i am to be born the way i am you know i'm a you know middle-aged white man that's had most doors opened for him his whole life i i wasn't raised you know wealthy but didn't want for much and you know those things have allowed me to sort of swing for the fences through my career and really take risks knowing that i can fall back on my family or fall back on my career and now you know i have three children and an incredible wife and you know kate my wife's um name is kate you know we feel very fortunate to uh you know have the life that we have built together but i have a son from a previous relationship and you know getting back to the mentorship like I mean, I had a long call yesterday with one of my old cooks who wants some help in her career. And, you know, of course, I mean, that's a that's a, a call that I that I just absolutely love, you know, participating in because that is our job as as humans, but also, you know, as as leaders or elders in our careers to be able to help the next generation succeed and maybe show them a bit of a path that they you know can't quite see at this moment. Yeah. And you can tell you talking as you want to do that. It's not that mm. you're supposed to do that, right? It's that you want to impart and kind of have that joy of experience passed off, you know, passed on to the future generations. Um, and again, getting back to kind of what I said just at the beginning too, is is that kind of culture of inclusivity in the kitchen is something, mm-hmm. you know, just hearing you when we had a conversation before talk about it. Because I admit, like, even if, you know, I have two boys, if they're older, they're like, oh, I want to, you know, be a chef in the restaurant industry. I might have had a little bit of pause just because I had this conceptual idea of what a food industry, what, you know, like a little, just all of this. But hearing you talk, it's, it's, yeah. um, it's just changed my perspective of what that can be, that the industry also itself well, can be changing and it can be a place for inclusivity, joy, experience and contribution. Absolutely. I mean, you know, famously, the restaurant business was male dominated, the restaurant business, not kitchens, Uh uh, although, you know, kitchens in the restaurant business, because many cultures and many kitchens are female dominated. But in the North American kitchen, certainly in the European kitchen, it's very male dominated. Um, You know, the traditional apprenticeship in Europe starts when you're 12, 13, 14, you know, because you're trying to get out of the house to sort of, you know, create some room for your parents to breathe. And, and that's not that different than me. My first job at 14 was to pay for my expensive, expensive jeans that I wanted to buy at Hills of Caresdale. <laughs> you, know, you know, my mom was like, oh yeah, you want big stars? Well, you got to go uh, wash some dishes to pay for those uh, $150 jeans that, you know, at the time, you know, she couldn't afford. But, you know, I have seen over the last 35 years, I can't believe I've been in the kitchen for that long, but a kitchen that was all white and all male for 15 or 20 years now is very culturally diverse, sensitive to it, becoming more so, certainly, you know, famously fairly toxic um, and still can be toxic in some kitchens. Um, you know, very inclusive of having, you know, gender equity, certainly, you know, great female leaders, some of the best chefs I've ever known happen to be female. Um and I love having balance in my kitchen because too much of one thing skews it one way or the other. I mean, you can go sort of either way. And you're always looking, you know, you don't hire for culture, you don't hire for gender, but you can certainly as a leader create opportunities, equal opportunities for all the talent that comes through your door that's looking to work with you. And truthfully, my reputation is such now that people come to me because they hear that that's the kind of a kitchen I run and have run for 15 years. So, you know, they um, they being the incredible people that I get to work alongside, just they make our food more delicious. They make our conversations more robust. 
they make the environment more thoughtful and kind. And, you know, I really live my life from a place of kindness now. My wife went through breast cancer treatments a few years ago, a number of years ago, still kind of going through the rehab and recovery phase. And, you know, at that point, we were sort of laser focused on success, climbing the mountain, success, climbing the mountain, because that's what you have to be to, you know, to get ahead in life, it seems. And that, you know, 18 months really taught us that kindness is what we want to lead, is is how we want to lead our lives. And it just, honestly, it's so valuable to know that you're making thoughtful decisions for other people's success. That just means so much more to me than my own success. Like I don't need another newspaper article or television show or, you know, obviously I love podcasting now because it gives me an opportunity to tell stories with great friends like the two of you. But like, you know, I'm turning 50 this June. I, I look forward to cooking for the next 20 years. And, you know, do I really need another newspaper article? Like what's it going to do? Like, Let's showcase the people around me and what they are bringing to the table, the culture that they come from, the stories that they have to tell. And, you know, certainly I, you know, I, I think we all have heard the stories of, you know, the challenges with gender equity in kitchens over the last, you know, 25 years. And which is so surprising, truthfully, because we all know that most of the great cultures are female led when it comes to the food on the table and, you know, but not in European, you know, foundationally European kitchens and, and now of course North American. So anyway, that's uh you know, that's something that I continue to look forward to doing is having a kitchen that looks like Canada in front of me. And you know, that's uh definitely something that brings me I love joy. That. Awesome. Wow. Well said, Ned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is um your legacy, you know, what I'm hearing from you is your legacy isn't just, oh, look, there's that on the food channel, right? It's the change and the empowerment that you're creating for other chefs in the industry, right? And it sounds like, you know, that's the legacy that is going to be the lasting and the change that you're bringing to it. And um, so I, just jumping around here a little bit, I have a, a question just with respect to um, – because to be honest, one term that I didn't really hear a lot about until recently, and that was actually through following you, is the idea of like sustainable fisheries, right? This idea that because um, I, like probably a lot of people, had a naivety in terms of like, oh, it's the ocean. It's full of stuff, right? Oh, you know, and it, there was a lack of consciousness that I had around it. So – and, you know, over the years recently, it seemed to become apparent, well, no, that isn't just something we can just ignore and assume that it's going to be this plentiful bounty continuously that doesn't exist. So um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of your um, passion for sustainable fisheries and how that looks? Well, yeah, I mean, I, this podcast needs to be, you know, 15 episodes <laughs> no, of, uh, of what, you know. <laughs> Hour, hours, because I have an absolute ton to say. Um, we'll bring you back for the deep you know, dive. This can this can be the, per- the bird's perfect. eye view. Okay, I'll give you. I should stand up and stand at the pulpit because this might be a bit of a preach. But um, I'm I'm usually good walking around a stage when I'm talking about this stuff. You know, we know more about the moon than we do about the ocean. The ocean is every second breath we take. We in Canada are surrounded by three of the five oceans and seven seas in the world. Arguably, our country was founded on the backs of the fishery on the East Coast, the cod fishery. You know, why did we come here, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago? And I'm not speaking of the Indigenous and and First Nations peoples who have been here for 12,000 years, long before we stumbled upon this place and and began extracting Mm -hmm. things, whether it be fisheries, whether it be forestry, whether it be my minerals, you know, we have for generations extracted fish. Um, The oceans, you know, I believe in mother nature. I believe she can recover eventually. Um, But we also have this strange addiction in North America to eating square chunks of relatively flavorless protein in the center of our plate. And that doesn't mean I don't love beef tenderloin and chicken breast. And, you know, I mean, in North America, we eat four species of things. We eat something pink, salmon, something red, tuna, 
something white, you know, cod, halibut, and by far the most consumed seafood in North America is shrimp. Most of it farmed somewhere else, to be quite honest, although we have some great shrimp fisheries on, on both the West and the East Coast. Most people don't think about the, the third coast, which is the Arctic. You know, we don't think about the Arctic very often um, in this country. Currently, we will and are and will need to more so. You know, but so we landed here, you know, uh, you know, on the shores of Newfoundland and Labrador and the East Coast of, of North America. You know, we took the fish, we brought it back to Europe. Um, we came seasonally, took the fish, brought it back to Europe. You know, my grand, great-grandmother is from Buren, Newfoundland. Classic sort of Canadian story. You know, great-grandmother born in Newfoundland. You know, grandfather born in Saskatoon. My mom was born in Winnipeg. And, and you know, I was born in the Okanagan. And, and then we settled on the West Coast. So, you know, I grew up on Vancouver Island fishing with my father. You know, I mean, the salmon were this big, you know, like, like you put the, you put the rod in the ocean and, and the giant Chinooks leapt out of, out of the, you know, the ocean. And, but what's happened over the last, you know, number of decades, we've improved how we fished. We've improved, you know, how to find the fish that we're looking for. We call it fishing, but really it's Uh hunting. And, you know, so in improving the way that we find the fish and, and extract the fish, we just take way too much of it way too often. And so on the shores of the East Coast, the cod fishery collapsed in the early 90s. Still not a commercial fishery has, has uh, um, you know, started again from, from a cod perspective. And the truth is we're doing exactly the same thing right now on the West Coast of Canada with wild Pacific salmon. The only place on the planet that has five unique species of wild Pacific salmon is right here. And why is that species important? It's a keystone species. Eagles, whales, bears, trees, and our First Nations say that we are made up of 80% salmon because all five, six things in the ecosystem needs that thing to survive. Streams and rivers, uh, you know, lakes, and certainly oceans. And so it's all interconnected. We know that. We've always known that. But now, of course, with, you know, the extraordinary knowledge that we are being, um, you know, that we're learning from our Indigenous and First Nations neighbors, we know that, you know, we need to do controlled burns. We need to fish certain streams at certain times. But we live in a capitalist society where, you know, cash is king. And if we can take something out of the ocean, cut it down in the forest, um, you know, we're going to. And so we just continue to hammer these four species, which is the problem because the ocean doesn't work that way. There's hundreds, if not thousands of things in the ocean we could be eating. But by taking one thing out of the ocean or, you know, a very select uh, group of those things out of the ocean, the ecosystem collapses on itself. And then what happens is that, you know, it's sort of, I would I would use the uh, the story of of the herring fishery. Well, herring fishery is extraordinarily important for all fish in the ocean. You know, the the whales eat herring, the salmon eat herring, and then it sort of continues up the food chain and down the food chain. And so, you know, for me as a chef, I guess being raised on Vancouver Island, born in the Okanagan, being in Vancouver, when you're from here, you really live inside the environment. We really do live in the environment here on the West Coast. And so we're connected to it, unlike most Canadians are. We live in a forest. We live on the coastal mountain range. We, you know, smell and breathe the ocean. You know, it's not that Calgarians or, you know, Winnipeggers, um, you know, don't recognize the importance of it, but they just don't think about it as much because it's out of sight, out of mind. Fish arrives in the grocery store, you know, and, and, you know, they might not even eat a lot of seafood if they're not close to the ocean because, you know, you don't think about it. So... As we continue to hammer the ocean with climate change, with global warming, with species depletion and continued extraction, the ecosystem is just sort of screaming at us saying, hey, guys, like if you kill the oceans slowly but surely through, you know, incredible shipping traffic that happens here on the West Coast, but also around the world, you know, stream degradation through, you know, habitat issues, obviously forestry and mining, all of those things influence how mother nature can recover. But we love to eat fish. And, you know, we also love to eat farmed animals, um, you know, pork and chicken and beef. We raise animals for our consumption and consumption is complicated. And we, we, you know, so many people, well, 
what fish is best if it's wild well that's just false you know it, it, it when people that tell me they don't have they don't enjoy farmed fish i say well when's the last time you had wild chicken like we eat farmed animals right mm-hmm. and so if aquaculture done well in the right places currently represent about 60% of 60% of the seafood that we consume in North America is farmed. But the problem is we don't know that because we go to the grocery store. We don't ask many questions. We just order the thing or we ask for or purchase the thing. We hear that wild is best. You know, it's sort of like, you know, fresh and frozen, like, you know, premium fish can be frozen too, if caught at sea and flash frozen and you know, doesn't have to live 10 days before it gets to the grocery store for it to be fresh. So my journey now for the last, you know, decade, I guess, but really since we founded OceanWise in 2005 has been education and awareness around responsible, wild, well-managed fisheries and responsible aquaculture, because it is a wild and farm conversation and it is a fresh and frozen conversation. And underneath that sort of big statement, there's all kinds of complicated conversations. It is not a simple thing. Um, but I believe that mother nature deserves a fighting chance and, you know, certain fisheries I'd like us to lay off of completely for a period of time so we can let them recover. You know, we'll see. Uh, I am an optimist. I believe, um, you know, that slowly humans, you know, a certain segment of humans will do the right thing, but seafood is just a deep passion because it, the ocean is right there. I was raised on it. All of us were in some way, shape or form. And, you know, uh, if we don't, we're going to collapse a fishery or fisheries that will have us only eating farmed seafood from somewhere else where we can't regulate how that fish is farmed. So, you know, it is it is a global conversation. So I have a question for you, Ned, because I am definitely one of those people who default, and it's because it's literally, it's what my mother told me. And I never questioned it further than that, that I always thought wild was better than farmed when it came to seafood specifically. So I specifically, if I'm buying seafood in the store, I will look for the wild over the farmed version of the seafood. And... The information that I have seen more recently in, you know, documentary form and things like that, when they talk about uh, fish farms, the concern that gets brought up is a lot around parasite infestation and and infection and and those kinds of things within the farm um, culture, right? And, And... I think I just connected those two. So therefore farmed fish is bad because it's, it's parasite ridden or it's, you know, infected or whatever without ever doing any more research than that. So that is a hundred percent on me, but is there um, like, clearly there's better information than what my mother told me 40 years ago. Well, I, I wrote uh, I rode my bike across Canada in the summer of 2014 to start a foundation called Chefs for Oceans, basically to try and you know tie the the, the thread together with my peers across Canada to have these complicated mm-hmm. conversations from coast to coast. You know, wild fish has issues. Yep. Farmed fish, farmed fish has mm-hmm. issues. There is no black and white mm-hmm. statement. Mm-hmm. This is not there. It, it's impossible for it to be black and white because you know, as I've said numerous times today, consumption is complicated. Um, interestingly enough, well, <laughs> I wrote a blog post in 2019 that went fairly viral, and um, it was really trying to to bring people from one side and the other side together into the middle to have this, you know valuable and complicated conversation together. The activists have done a very good job at scaring the crap out of us, to be quite honest. And they, and the media loves to tell those stories. And I base my beliefs in science, Mm -hmm. period. It's not an emotional thing. It is a science thing. So in my book, I have what I call the ocean guardians. So it's ocean wise, which was started in 2005. It's an organization called Seafood Watch out of the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California uh, that was started in 2009, Um, the Marine Stewardship Council and the Aquaculture Stewardship Council. So those are my four science-based organizations that are rooted in science. Now, 
science is, is can, you can debate science. I mean, we all know that, you know, there, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not always black and white mm-hmm. either, but I, I base my, my beliefs on, on, you know, um, department of fisheries and ocean scientists who've been in the game for 30 or 40 years plus who still say that there is no direct correlation to the declining populations of wild Pacific salmon to fish farms. The the activists completely disagree. Mm -hmm. Um, It's their prerogative to disagree. And and I would say that there are challenges within the aquaculture industry that we will need to continue to address. The interesting thing about, you talk about parasites, wild salmon give farmed salmon sea lice. Ah. They don't exist in farmed salmon. Every wild animal has a lice or a flea or a tick that is attracted to that wild animal, right? I mean, why don't we eat bears? Because they're full of worms. Some of us eat bears. But, you know, so if you catch a wild salmon and you look on the belly of the wild salmon, you will see sea lice that are living on that fish. This is a natural ecosystem, you know, uh, conversation. I mean, period. So what ends up happening is when you have these fish farms that are close to migrating rivers for wild Pacific salmon, the argument is that there is a, a collection of sea lice that are in and around the fish farm that are attracted to these fish that then potentially get attached to juvenile salmon, the little guys, as they're swimming out to their lives Mm -hmm. in the ocean for one to four years and then come back to the same river. Magic, by the way. Salmon are are absolutely magic. And so, you know, I see incredible value in the people challenging fisheries and challenging aquaculture (laughs) but what i don't see value in is when people ignore science and i feel as though often science is ignored for what will get the government in power at the time of vote or make them look good it's not based in what in what the truth is always we know that politicians aren't always telling the truth and i'm not against politicians i I work for the province of British Columbia as the chef ambassador. So I see value in, 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 you know, politics and, and the structure that we live under here in Canada and and provincially. But what I, you know, I, like I'm not paid to be on one side Mm -hmm. or the other. I'm just trying to be in the middle and do my work, put my boots on the ground of many fish farms all over the world, but certainly all over Canada and on boats of fisheries and, you know, whether it be small scale fisheries or larger scale fisheries all over Canada and all over the world, each one of them has challenges where we can improve. I mean, it's sort of, it's like fossil fuels or, or, you know, electric cars, like neither one of those are perfect, right? We know this. So where do we as consumers want to come together? I drive a hybrid I have for 15 years, but like, is that make me better than someone else who drives a truck from 30 years ago that, you know, has, you know, using fossil fuels? No, of course it doesn't. But it means that we should continue to have these conversations. So farm fish is not a four-letter yep. word and wild is not always best. But it's your prerogative to buy and eat whatever you want. And I support that. I just want you to maybe dive a little <laughs> deeper, you know, ask, just ask the question. And <laughs> and that's it. I mean, that's what is, this conversation is really opening my eyes up to is, oh, wait a second. It, it's, not unlike, hey, don't buy sunlight because my mother always bought sunlight, right? Like, don't buy wild just because my mother always said it was best. We we grow up with these. Um, we we really do adopt a lot of attitudes from our parents and and the culture that we grew up in. And um, I think there are some things in this conversation that I know, cause my mom ate a lot of fish. So it, it was a thing in our household that actually got talked about. So I'm very aware how much of that attitude I have never once thought about for myself. Well, I will, I will add to that and say, guess what guys, we are creatures yeah. of habit. Yeah. We all are. We buy the same things. We often do the same things for decades. And that is part of the challenge. It's actually part of my big things that I want to talk about today. But as a creature of habit, you know, we, we do what we were told or what we were taught. And isn't it nice to be able to think outside yes. of the box? Because totally industries evolve. Yeah. Pe- you know, 
Absolutely. And I think there's, um, it is interesting, like, cause we do, we outsource some of our, um, value and that's out of necessity out of habit right because we have to have some things on that kind of automatic software but i think what i'm hearing from you too is is just like it definitely pays and is valuable to assess what things are in those categories stuff like food you know stuff like seafood where again it's so easy to put into a thing and you know like i'm same thing you go to a store and you've got like i'm thinking about kids and like so much stuff happening if a choice can be made by one word that you see as a flash wild versus whatever there's a value in it in the sense of it's the ease but taken globally and i think with the way overall our life and our culture is going we need to have those, as you called it so perfectly, like delicate kind of complicated conversations because things aren't black and white anywhere, right? Like we're talking about food, but the same could be said for politics, religion, like all these different things. Why are we here, right? And when we entrench ourselves and we go into the automatic outsourced value from our parents or society or culture, then that's, you know, not necessarily conducive to growth. So, you know, this is a great conversation. And again, yes, we should probably get to the the three things. I could extrapolate three things just from what you've said so far. But Ned, if you got, if you got three things, let's jump into them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I am, you know, a recovering alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 12 years. And and certainly one of the challenges within the industry that I work in and have for most of my adult life um, has been overconsumption of, you know, uh, I'm not going to make light of it at all, but sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, you know, I come from an alcoholic uh, family, um, you know, talking about creatures of habit, you know, my grand, both my grandfathers, both my parents, you know, grew up with, you know, enabling, um, you know, my, my parents or my mom specifically, you know, who enabled me to, you know, start drinking at too young of an age. And then I got into the restaurant business where consumption was, was everywhere. And, you know, I, I, thanks to, you know, my wife and my children and, you know, I guess myself, you know, I, I decided that enough was enough. And, it was hard to make those changes originally. I tried to quit for years. I tried to quit many times. And, you know, I think what I what I really took from that, it's a daily occurrence for me. I don't struggle with alcohol at all anymore, but it's a daily conversation I have with myself. And it's it's a it's something that I do I never shy away from because I'm proud of what I've been able to um, accomplished through, you know, not drinking for over a decade, but I guess one of my big things, you know, how did I get there? Well, uh, you know, if I was to put parentheses around it, it's don't change much, you know, and that could be said for the seafood that you consume, the food that you consume, the exercise that you want to do, the alcohol that you don't want to drink, the sugar you want to reduce, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, how do you, how do you run a marathon? You start by running around the block. Like, you know, humans are creatures of habit. I, I mentioned that before. We all are, you know, I go to the grocery store and I buy the same things every day, you know, every mm-hmm. week because my kids want to eat broccoli and chicken or my wife doesn't like lentils or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. And so when I go to the grocery store and I've done this for a long time, I actually leave three lines blank on the bottom of my list and I force myself to fill it with things that I haven't bought recently. So it could be cabbage, could be celery root, could be a different protein I haven't tried, could be tempeh instead of tofu, could be lentils instead of chickpeas or both, could be, you know, quinoa instead of rice. Like, you don't have to change much. And I'll credit my wife with this, actually. We've been married for 14 years. And early on in our relationship, you know, I used to not think that I had succeeded in my exercise routine unless I'd gone for like a two-hour run. Like, as you can, you know, somebody who's ridden across Canada, you probably know that I have a fairly you know, crazy personality for like big goals. And so if I hadn't gone for a two hour run, I didn't even bother 
you know, because it was like, what's the point? And she said, you know, you can just go for a half an hour run and that half an hour run will do, you know, lots of good for you when it comes to your wellness, whether it be mental and physical, when it comes to your fitness, et cetera. So that don't change much sort of philosophy guides my every day. It's just like, if all I can do today is go for a half an hour walk, that's what I'm going to do. And maybe tomorrow I'll think good about myself and, you know, I'll go for that hour long run. Or if I go for that hour long run, I'll realize, hey, I can, I deserve half a chocolate bar tonight, or I deserve a full chocolate bar tonight. Like I always try and work on deficit. So if I've had an exercise, I'll try and have a treat, but I don't have a treat unless I've had some exercise. And that's just come from being a fat kid. And, you know, for me, it wasn't a glass of wine, it was a bottle and that was never enough. So, you know, it's don't change much would be my first. I love that. I love that so much. And that kind of fits into the, you know, not black or white. You know, we have this idea that we have to hit a home run to make change, you know, but it's not the case. I totally agree. I love that. And it doesn't take much to have to create a monumental shift kind of down the line. So I love that. Okay. Yeah. 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 My, my second one, I, in my cookbook, I called it the 52 and 12. I'll tell you what it is in the cookbook. The cookbook's called Lure because I want to lure you into the conversation of sustainable seafood. Oh, I love that. Um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the 52 and 12, because we're creatures of habit, we go to the grocery store and we buy the same things. The challenge of the 52 and 12 is I want you to eat sustainable seafood once a week for the next year. And then once a month, I want you to try something from the ocean you've never had before. And by doing those two things, you're going to diversify your diet. You're going to take less pressure off things that Mother Nature, you know, gives us, but maybe needs to sort of leave in the ocean, you know, like just choosing a, a different seafood or choosing something you've never had before. Like, why do we only eat four species of fish? Well, it's because we want square chunks of flavorless protein with no bones in them. But gosh, there's a, a ton, there's 10,000 edible plants in the ocean. Like the ocean is two thirds of the planet is covered by ocean. Like it, there is no more important conversation on planet earth than the regulation and the health of our oceans, period, full stop. If we can take care of the ocean and mother nature, she will take care of us. And, you know, we can do a lot of damage on land, of course, but so the 52 and 12 is my, is my second big thing. I love that. Um, I just want to say, yeah, one. I love that one too. Well, because the 12 too, like the 12, like the 52, you know, the sustainability, I, I like that idea. But the 12 really speaks to me as well because it's new. It's an experience. It again, it breaks that habitual mold, right? It's just like, you know, it, it almost makes me anxious. Like, oh my gosh, to see stuff. Like, what? Like, but, but in that forces me to be present with the act of consuming food and nourishment, which in and of uh -huh. itself is, 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 is obviously a big plus. And I think that that's that 12 that gets that kind of excited curiosity of potentially something new. So I like that. And yeah. I think again, yeah. you, you could probably, I think as you're saying, you could use that rule in other things, even other than, you know, uh, sustainable or, or, or eating seafood, but as a good way to start, that is a good one. So thank you. Well, I like that. It's sort of an extrapolation of the three lines on your grocery list, right? For something yeah, new right. or, or not recent. Right? And I love that concept. That's right. Well, you know, we all here do something that scares yeah. you, right? So 12 times a year, do something, you know, on your dinner plate that scares you a little bit. It doesn't have to scare you, but it's just like, you know, it could be as simple as like, putting a big pot of mussels with butter and apple juice in front of the family on Sunday night, uh, you know, you'd never buy mussels and, you know, mother nature's real fast food is shellfish, oysters, clams, mussels. They don't even, you don't need to feed them anything. You know, they drink a healthy ocean. That's how that protein thrives. And, you know, I think we as, as humans can do ourselves such massive favors by just you know, kind of pushing out a little bit, like it's the don't change much, right? It's, you don't have to change much to just make your, your life, your diet more exciting, more healthy, more diverse, you know, your, your kids will thank you for it. I mean, my youngest son, when, or my middle son, sorry, when I f was, you know, first starting to put lentils in front of him, he, he said, dad, why do lentils taste so bad? <laughs> and now, you know, but he, 
he just hadn't mm-hmm. eaten them, right? I mean, you know, now when they're in the middle of the table, he eats them no problem, right? I mean, it's sort of, it, it's about, you know, repetition and education. And it leads to my last big thing is, you know, nutrient-dense plant-based with sustainability as the garnish. So we, we in North America eat far too much of far too large portions of protein. So, you know, no one needs to eat eight ounces of something or God forbid, 12 ounces of something. Like it's just not, your body is not meant to consume that much high fat protein. And people would often say to me, well, sustainable seafood is more expensive. Well, yeah, if it's well-managed, caught from a responsible fishery or farm, it is going to be costly. No different than higher-end chicken or higher-end beef or, you know, and I'm not talking about affordability. So I deserve, I, I, I fully recognize affordability is a whole other podcast mm-hmm. that we can, that we could talk about, but I'm talking about currently sort of premium things that we already consume that mother nature gives us. And I think we need to eat less of the things that we love, but value them more. So mm-hmm. instead of eight or 10 ounces of something, why not four or five ounces of something, but fill your plate up with nutrient dense plant-based ingredients. So you're your tummy is full, you are nourished, you are well fed, you have energy for the day or the evening or the next day, and you still get to enjoy a gorgeous four ounce piece of wild salmon or a gorgeous, you know, four ounce piece of farmed steelhead or wild albacore tuna or something, 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 something. So it's nutrient dense plant based uh, with sustainability is the garnish. Hmm. I love that. I love uh-huh. that too, because I think it helps. Um, Cause I've fallen into this too. Like even if there's a big kind of piece of protein, it's very e- easy to lose consciousness with that. If there's endless bites and it's like kind of this constant like consumption, but if there's less, it can also like theoretically be more with respect to experience because I have fewer bites of that wonderful piece of salmon on my plate. Right. So I'm going to be more inclined to be conscious with each one of those bites. And if I can be conscious with each one of those bites, then that's a win win. Not only, like, from my point of view, do we actually absorb a little bit more if we're conscious with the the act of of eating, Um, we can get the flavors, we can get the experience and joy from it. Absolutely. And maybe a little bit more thoughtful in how you procure it. You know, maybe, maybe you're going to spend a bit more time going to that local butcher shop or that local fishmonger or that local cheesemonger. Cause you're saying, you know what, I actually have a little bit of time. I'm spending good money on this thing. I want to go find something really special. I want to go to the best of the thing, you know, like I don't buy my seafood at big box retailers. I don't, you know, it, because I feel as though the protein that I'm looking for is the, the, the 12 of the 52 and 12 is at a fish monitor mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the, the unique cuts of meat, you know, we eat ribeye and strip loin and beef tenderloin. Well, there's a giant animal there that we should be consuming. So true sustainability of an entire animal not only helps the cow itself, but also the rancher and the farmer that is growing that thing. We need to eat the whole thing. It's not all hamburger mm-hmm. meat, you know, like it's just about being a little more conscious, you know, don't change much you know, like we eat three times a day if we're lucky and we can afford it. Like there is no more important thing in our daily lives than what we put in our bodies, period. And what we feed our children, period. And, you know, we are all incredibly busy. We are all, you know, challenged financially. All of us are. So, you know, this will mean different things to different people. But for me, it's like, I don't ask you, I don't want you to change the world in how you purchase. I just want you to, you know, Make a few small changes. Don't change much. Don't change exactly. much. Exactly. And I think what I'm like hearing you talk, I'm not like I, and like I think a lot of people have a should part of the brain. Like we're supposed to, oh, that'd be better, better. Which is, which is, you know, not irrelevant in terms of like creating a world that's, you know, good for our kids. But hearing, you know, your three things and just hearing you talk about food, it's not again about the shoulds there's opportunity for joy and experience here it's not like oh i got to be a martyr and do my part by kind of like doing that there is this joy available so it's not like we have to eliminate any aspect of you know connection joy experience in fact all that will increase so i love i love that and i just 
Well, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. That is exactly why I love what I do. Yeah. It's not about should. It's it's about wanting yeah. to. I love cooking for my friends. I love cooking for my family. It it brings me so much joy to, you know, I'm I love being in the kitchen. I get up at five in the morning. If I'm not in the gym, I'm in the kitchen prepping something, not because I have to, because I want to. It's just, it's just, I, you know, I love what I do. So it's never been about, I want to shame you into doing something. You know, we have done this. We have to do that. Like that doesn't work. Humans don't work that way. They, the food is delicious, man. It, if I'm lucky, if I put something tasty in your belly, you're going to like me, period. And if you like me, you're going to listen to me. I mean, that's how it works. You know, like I feel so fortunate. I, I don't, you know, my career has given me everything. It has given me joy. It has given me financial stability. It is, I've traveled the world. I, you know, met my wife because of food. My children love that their daddy loves what he does and is a good cook. And, you know, if we're lucky to love what we do, is, I mean, what else matters, man? Like, not another million bucks, mm. I'll tell you that much. It does That does not matter. No. Well, and I think there's, like, there's so much. It doesn't matter how basic or how fancy the food is. When it is approached with that um, attitude of joy and sharing, it is such a, like, there is so much joy in that experience of, sharing food or um nurturing and and feeling cared for i'll tell you what i went away with my son up to our cabin a couple of weeks ago um for like i don't know three days or something and he was so excited because he lives in a little you know basement thing where he's got like a hot plate and an air fryer right now so he doesn't really get to cook at home he only gets to cook at work and he was so excited because he had a kitchen to cooking and so he made me the most astounding things all weekend and I felt so loved and so cared for and he was having so much fun because he had the creative freedom to just make shit up (laughs) you know like do what he wanted to do and and experiment and he wasn't cooking off the restaurant menu he got to so it was like both of us had this amazing shared experience for different reasons but it was this incredibly nurturing experience on both ends and i think there's not a lot of things that provide that outside of food that pop to mind easily anyway I agree. I'd love hearing that story. And the truth, you know, everybody thinks, well, I get, I'm going to go into chefing because I want to be a celebrity chef. There was no food network when I went to culinary school. I did not go to culinary school to be a celebrity chef. I went to culinary school to be a chef, mm-hmm. period. Like it, food network didn't exist. So the, the spectrum of career opportunities in food is everything from small entrepreneur to extraordinarily successful, to premium casual, to fast food, to super fine dining, to hotels. You can travel the entire world on the backs of Mm -hmm. food. Like, you know, like, you know, I don't know a better opportunity for a young person now to be able to take a, 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 you know, I'm a proud blue collar tradesperson, as I've said, to take a career and it doesn't have to be the rest of your life. It might be like me, but you know, to take a career and be able to go explore this place that we live on called planet mm-hmm. earth, you know, like food and culture and countries and humans and engagement. I've been on a, on a shrimp farm in Vietnam that will forever change my life. Like meeting a family of people raising shrimp the right way, cooking with them. Mm. I mean, I have been in five different countries, sorry, five different cities in China cooking in different little towns and cities that will forever change my life. I mean, food Mm -hmm. brought me there. Cooking brought me there, you know? So you don't have to be chained to one stove. You can do 15 different things in your career if you want to be in food be a chef, you know, chef. I, no one has to call me chef. My name is Ned. <laughs> no one calls me chef in my kitchen. You call me Ned because that is my name. They know I'm the chef. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's not on my jacket. Like I, who cares about that baloney? Like that used to be, but when you have success, you kind of realize like 
you don't need all that stuff. You know, like you don't need all that. Like I said, the, the next newspaper article or the next, you know, look at him and what he's doing. Like, no, no, no. Look at us and what we're doing. That's what it's all about. Cause they are who I fall back on when I, you know, need to uh-huh. daily is my teams and my people and, you know, taking care of them is all that matters. Just like taking care of my family. I fall back on my family, my wife, my three sons, Max, Jet, and Finn. They've made my life the most incredible life that I could have ever dreamed of. And, you know, they're playing hockey in the room next door. And <laughs> it doesn't bring me more happiness than hearing them have fun yeah, together. I love that. Oh, that's wonderful, Ned. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And <laughs> I... um you know, I couldn't help but think I would never want this for you, but I wish we talked about politics and I, I just, there's so many things we talked about today that I think is required to talk about on um, a bigger level, like that political aspect and stuff. And it's just, you would make an incredible, well, you are an incredible leader, you know, and yeah. um, it would be incredible even in areas that aren't related to food, but I see how much joy and the contribution you're making with where you're doing it. So it's perfect the way it is. I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to clone you and we could do something else with the the other Neds I'm doing stuff. Send the army of Neds out to change the world. The army of Neds. My voice can matter just from where I just, from where I am. And, you know, I've heard before people, you should go into politics. I'm like, I'm doing what I want to do. You know, I can make change from this place. And, you know, it's... It, it happens to be a kitchen, but it's one, it's food, food, food connects all of us. It does. And, you know, I happen to have a lot of very good politician, political friends, and that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, stir my soul. What stirs my soul is feeding people and making delicious things. And I will continue stirs to Stirs my it. soul. I love that saying. <laughs> I, I've actually never heard that. Of course, it's a chef of our, you know, Neville that think, does that for me. I love I that. Think, I think maybe Ned just uh, told us the name of his next cookbook. <laughs> there, there we go wow you oh. never know i just made that up by the way i've never used that before love it wow well that went quickly today's episode um again there's so much more we could talk about and you know we would love to have you on again at some other point uh-huh. for sure because there's a lot of there's a lot here um but love to be back yeah thank you so much those three things were were very helpful and I personally got a lot out of this absolutely today. Absolutely. So before we go, where can people taste your delicious culinary creations, Ned? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, we're on a bit of a hiatus professionally. So we we opened a business called the Naramata Inn in the Okanagan three uh-huh. years ago. Uh, but Kate and, Kate and I have decided to move back to Vancouver. We're going to still have our, our partnership in the end, but we're no longer going to yeah. operate it. So I don't really have a home kitchen in the immediate future. The things I'm looking forward to are continuing to highlight the farmers and fishers and artisans and makers of this province through the BBC campaign of which I'm the chef ambassador through the, through, um, through the province. And then looking ahead, the BC seafood festivals coming up over on Vancouver Island that I'm uh, curating. So I'm looking forward to that. And you know, stay tuned. Follow me on on the socials, and uh, you know there'll be some stories. I'm sure. What are and, your handles? You know, I uh, uh, at and Ned we'll, Bell. we'll put all this in the show notes it's for people. Easy. But yeah, <laughs> and um, let's just hit on your cookbook once more. Is it is it a thing that we can find on the old Amazon, or where where do people buy it? Yeah. Yeah, well, they could reach out to me directly at Ned Bell, or they could. Um, they so the book came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. It's gone through three printings. Nice. It's done quite well. It's called Lure. It's a celebration of seafood from California to Alaska. And the original goal after my ride was to have a book uh, for each coast: the Arctic and inland fisheries, the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, but uh, the pandemic sort of derailed the the, the East Coast book. So. Hoping to do uh, another book soon, but the West Coast book does incredibly well. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I could even devalue it and sign it for people if oh, they wow. want. Wow. <laughs> so fancy. <laughs> uh, I love it. Love it. Love it. My mom thinks I'm a celebrity, you know, so I mean, <laughs> only my mom. That's all that matters. Train. That's all that matters. That's okay. That's all that matters. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Ned. And uh, we'll see you next time.
See you then. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks for joining our conversation today. You can head over to thisbiglifepodcast.com for all the show notes and information. If you loved what you heard here today, would you do us a favor and rate and review the show? It helps more people just like you discover these juicy conversations. And if you know someone you think would love this particular episode, you can even go ahead and share it with them right now. And if you have a topic you would love to hear us discuss, or someone you think would make a great guest for our show, you can submit your ideas using the link in the show notes. And you can always find us on Instagram, at This Big Life Podcast. Thanks again. We'll be right back here in your ears next Tuesday. See you then.